0: While you're helping others become leaders themselves, you're holding yourself to a higher standard, elevating your own performance, and you're getting better as a human. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast.
1: Hi, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms. And today, we're going to be talking about what is maybe the most important topic when it comes to leadership and that's leading yourself. And I I know a lot of you are probably thinking that leadership is really about everyone else and how you influence them. And in part that's true, but it's really hard to do that effectively until you learn, it, learn to manage yourself first. I have an exceptional guest here today with me to talk about leading yourself and that's Bill Treasurer. Bill is the founder of Giant Leap Consulting, a courage building company. And he's worked with leaders at organizations ranging from NASA to eBay to Spanx and so many others. He's also the author of six books, including his latest, Leadership Two Words at a Time, and the international bestseller, Courage Goes to Work. Bill, welcome to the Leadership 480 podcast.
0: Beth, I am super excited to be here. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you. And I think really highly of DDI. I've known about him for a long, long time. So I'm really pleased to be here.
1: Thanks, Bill. And I want to start today, as we talk about self-leadership, I want to ask you about how you got into the study of leadership, because it's really a fascinating story. And what sparked you to become more aware of who you were as a leader and why you wanted to get better?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking the question. It goes back uh, before I started my company 20 years ago. And before I worked in consulting with big consulting companies and small entrepreneurial consulting companies, I was a member of the US high diving team. And I used to dive off of 100 foot platforms into small pools for a living, going at like 50 miles an hour at a oh, lot gosh. of amusement parks throughout the country. And I became the captain of the team, which meant that I got to lead this troop of athletes. All of these athletes were away from home entertaining audiences of like 2,000 upwards to sometimes of 40,000 people. But I didn't know who I was as a leader. And as I was in the act of leading these divers, I was heavy handed and I had a short fuse and I was over controlling. And one day, one of the older divers took me aside. And this was an aquatic entertainment production. It was a multi-million-dollar production done in fr- front of live audiences. You know, safety was a big concern and entertaining these Uh, patrons was a big concern. So I felt a lot of pressure, but I I was heavy handed. And one of the divers one day took me aside and said, Hey, listen, if you ever talk to us like that again, I'll walk. I don't need this job that badly to be treated poorly by you or anybody else. And I got defensive. I was like, Hey man, I'm your boss, not the other way around. But as I thought about it that night over a few beverages, I thought, he's right. I have no idea who I am as a leader. And so I started picking, I picked up a book, I picked up a book that you've heard of before. It's called The One Minute Manager by Dr. Mm -hmm. Ken Blanchard. And I, uh, that book did something inside of me. And I was like, wow, there's a different way of leading than adopting my own father's sort of leadership style. I had to develop my own leadership style and here's a path. And then I picked up another book and I came across the term organizational development. And I was starting to get better at leading, but I was becoming very interested in the topic. And I started reading a whole bunch of books on leadership, got fascinated with the topic, decided to put myself through graduate school, and and I was on my way. So if you think about it, it all comes back to the courage that it took one of my direct reports to give me upward feedback and for me to get past the defensiveness and the excuse making and sit with the fact that he was right. And it set me on the course of becoming interested in the topic of leader, leadership. And I think what, Beth, ultimately what it came down to was, yes, I got interested in how do you help motivate and inspire other people and get good performance out of them, but I was becoming a better human being in the process. And I think that that's, that's what's so attractive about leadership, that while you're helping others become leaders themselves, you are becoming, you're holding yourself to a higher standard elevating your own performance and you're getting better as a human and that so that that's the backstory there
1: and and I think it's so relevant for our audience of that part of getting to know yourself as a leader what you're likely to do before you can be effective managing anybody you've got to know what's going on with you and one of the things you mentioned in that story was um, you had some natural tendencies of like just the way you had been taught to lead and uh, what kind of came naturally to you in terms of what you had seen before. So as we, I think as leaders, we all have to kind of learn to overcome sometimes our natural tendencies. Um, And in your book, one of the things you talk about is the power of using memorable two word phrases that kind of help you short circuit what you might ordinarily do. So how do these help you keep yourself in check?
0: Yeah. What what I found over time, so I've done a lot of executive coaching, both in this job and uh, in running my company for the last 20 years. And I spent six years in Accenture and Accenture is one of the world's largest management consulting companies. I was uh, for six years. I was there. And and my last role, I was their very first full time internal executive coach. And I was coaching everybody I coached, and I had a clientele of about 35 partners and associate partners. All of them outranked me. And which was great for me because it, it helped me understand what was on the mind of these leaders that were dealing with a lot of pressure. And I cut my teeth in coaching. But what I found was a lot of times a coach, a coachee will come in and you're having a conversation with them, and they're all confused about something. They're there's some frustration that they're having. There's some a direct report is you know, annoying them uh, on some level or a client or a customer, there's a lot of pressure and it's all cloudy for them. And if I could get one of those coaches, if I could just laser them in, if, if I, and I often would ask them the question, if you could laser in on the thing that's bothering you, what it, would it be? Or if I said, if you could laser in on the solution to the frustration that you're having, what would it be in the fewest amount of words? And what I found was the fewer the words that they used, the more likely it was that they'd be able to actually implement the thing we were talking about. So I'll give you a specific example because it's, it's really the one that started to set me on the path of doing this, cataloging these two word concepts. I had a guy named Steve, good guy, very intense, and and a little bit desperate from wanting to go from an associate partner to partner. And and I could understand why, partners made, a huge salary they were uh, affecting all the decisions in the company and he wanted to be a partner really really bad and that anxiousness was coming through in his disposition and it was really off-putting to some people and he came to coaching and in the coaching i asked him i said steve if you were reflecting what the partners are wanting to see before you become a partner and you and you narrowed it down in the fewest amount of words what is it that you think that they're wanting that you don't yet have. And he was quiet for a second, and he said, "Calm, confidence." Just those two words, calm confidence. And he was exactly right. In my coaching with him, I was like, "That's exactly it, right? They want to see that you have calm composure, that you are composed, that you're calm, and that you have confidence. And in that calmness, that you don't have to have all this anxiousness and to, you know." With your sharp elbows of ambition, they want to see calm confidence. And then he started using that. So he'd get ready to go to a meeting, and he would quickly text me, "Hey, I've got I'm carrying my CC with me." That became our clue for calm <laughs> confidence, right? And and over time, I started working with other coaches, and you know, a, a comment that you'll that you know we might talk about this idea of personal fidelity. That was another two word concept. So I started cataloging these two word ideas because I found that the fewer amount of words that a leader uses to describe a frustration or the solution for a frustration, the their likelihood of actually doing the action to solve the situation goes dramatically higher. And I thought that there's a book there to take, you know, leadership can be confusing. We want a lot, leaders do a lot of stuff. We want them to be tactical and operational, but we want them to be strategic. We want them to be really smart And have emotional intelligence. Uh, We want them to be decisive, but we want them to be inclusive of a lot of voices. We want them to be everything, and and if you, that puts a burden on a leader. And Mm -hmm. by having them only focus on the two words right in front of them, whatever the two word concept might be, it makes it bearable. It removes the the heavy burden that sometimes comes with leadership.
1: I I love that concept of pulling in your focus to a simple two-word phrase and using that to sort of prompt yourself every time you you maybe know you're going into a situation where you're likely to maybe not come off as great and you have to, you know, prompt yourself, do this a little bit better, show calm confidence, or whatever your two-word phrase is. Um, but one of the keys to getting that to work is, of course, self-awareness. You have, to, you have to know where your derailers might end up being and, and what might get you in trouble. You have to know how you're coming off to other people so that you know when you have to use those little two-word prompts to get you going. Um, so in your book, you talk about a concept of sunny shadows that's a, a bit of a way of getting to know yourself and being aware of what you do well and where you kind of get yourself in trouble
0: yeah it's it's something that i um i guess i picked it up from carl jung the great psychologist that this idea that you know yes we we, well now we we all want to look at our strengths and that's great let's work towards our strengths so that you definitely will be your passion place uh and and it's not that we need to look at our quote unquote weaknesses or now we use the euphemism our opportunities for improvement uh Uh What I like what Jung does is he says, look at your strengths and recognize that after a certain point, beyond a certain threshold, those strengths will have diminishing returns. Those strengths themselves will start to cast a shadow. So I call it sunshine and shadows. You have the talents, your natural aptitude, the thing that you are good at, your confident place, and and you use it because it works for you and it's a, a strength that you've got. And it's not that you end up having a weakness, but beyond a certain point, that strength can be overused and it starts to cast this shadow. So, for example, uh, I've done you know lots and lots of, of I'm in front of groups all the time. i was I just got back this week. I was in Monterey doing a two day immersion program. And if I spend too much, time, I, I'm comfortable in front of groups, like I did the high diving show in front of sure. audiences, like I said, right? Like, a, uh, And it's been in front of probably 5,000 audiences over time. And so I'm comfortable on my feet. But if I got to be the stage, uh, the sage on a stage, if I have to be the center of attention, if I'm always the one drawing the sunlight my way, then I'm going to stifle other people's voices. I'm going to d- rob them of opportunities to present and influence people and such. So it's the overuse of something that has become a strength of mine I have to be cautious of. In the workplace, I've met a lot of people who are really smart, very intellectual, critical thinkers, and they should pride themselves on that because critical thinking is absolutely necessary. But if you overuse that critical thinking. It could be intimidating to the other people around you if you're constantly boring holes into other people's work, looking for the mistakes in their work with your criticality. So anything that you have as a strength, even, you know, from a leadership standpoint, your sunshine can be overused and you have to have enough self-evaluation, self-awareness and self-restraint to be able to identify what those are because they will The strength will help you, but the overuse of the strength will start to cast a shadow that will get in your own way.
1: That's really powerful advice, I think, for a lot of our leaders as we um, think about, you know, what got you into your first level leadership position is is often things like being hardworking and, you know, being so smart, as you mentioned. And then when you get into that leadership role, that's not what makes you good. It's what other people do that makes you good. And that's so hard. Do you see that changing a lot, too, as, um, you know, there's a shift when you go to your first leadership role, as you go to your middle manager role? And then, of course, at that executive level, do you feel that shift a lot as um, people people's strengths start to become weaknesses as they climb the ladder?
0: Yeah, that's it's, uh, insightful, right? Before, it's like, you know, you've even before you get a team, you're an individual contributor and you're knocking out things productively. You're hitting items on your to-do list. Uh, You're being productive. People are seeing the quality of your work. You do an exceptional job and they're like, uh, individually, as an individual contributor. And the reward for that, so you're successful on your own a lot. And the reward for that is they give you a team. And so you use the same things that made you successful as an individual, and you start using them with your team, which for them starts to feel like you're over-controlling, you're trying to do their job, you're not delegating enough, and you're just trying to do what you did before that made you successful. It's the, the old proverb, right? That what got you here won't get you there. And so, yes, you get to these pivot points, that individual contributor to first-time leader. But first-time leader is very operational and very tactical, and it has to be now you move up to say a division manager or regional vice president of something, you have to be operational. You can't be distant from that, but you now have to have a much further outlook in terms of your time and your calendar. So you have to become more strategic. You've gotta be thinking things six, 18 months from now, not just the end of this week, like you are when you're leading just a single team. So what's needed of you is different at each level. Which is good because it keeps you challenged as a leader, um, if you're open to learning. But if you took what made you successful as an individual contributor and try to use that in your leadership role, at some point you're going to start to plateau. Likewise, if you are and you've got one team and you're great operationally and you're great at managing a single team, but you're not starting to delegate more, you're not starting to think more strategically and such, you will plateau. So you, the good news is. The adventure of business, the adventure of learning, if you move into it, will allow you to keep, uh, you'll always be developing something more. We don't need to be always climbing upwards. I think you and I would acknowledge that, that lateral is great and the acquisition of experiences is great. We always have new things to learn. That's that's probably the uh, the more important point.
1: So as, as you do that, um, one of the challenges is certainly, I think, as we look inward, we try to lead ourselves better, as managing our own egos. Um, you know, and it's and I don't even mean that as you you're an extremely egotistical person necessarily, or that you're prideful. But um, most people who move up the ladder, even at that first level of leadership or whatever, you know, we take pride in our work. We we get a lot of feedback of like that was really good. You worked, you were the best one to lead that project or whatever it was. Um, and there, there comes a shift where it's not about you anymore, but also your, but your success kind of relies on others. So how do you start to manage that, that ego side of, um, you know, how you view yourself as successful and where you look for, um, signs of success and and praise?
0: Yeah. So management of ego is super important. Uh, The you're getting a lot of cues from others when you're in a leadership role that you're special. They start treating you as special. They start deferring to you. I don't know. What do you think, boss? Um, You can walk in late to a meeting and not have to offer an excuse and nobody will question you on that. But the the regular team member has to have an excuse. Uh, You can interrupt people when you're a leader. And other people aren't going to call you on it generally. So you get a lot of behavioral latitude in the form of special treatment, and and over time you may start to like that treatment and expect that treatment, and and now your ego is getting in the way, right? Now it's becoming more about you and your own fixation with, you know, do I get to have a bigger, you know, office? Do I get to have another parking space? Do I get to? What, what's my raise going to be this year? And uh, some self-interest is okay, but after a while that ego might inflate it, and There's actually somebody who wrote the forward to one of my books and a Pittsburgh person, or at least he lived in Pittsburgh for a Mm -hmm. while. And uh, he wrote his name is Clint Hurdle. He was the uh, manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates for a while. Mm -hmm. Good guy. And and he said in one of my books, he said. um, What he has learned is that there's two kinds of leaders, those who have been humbled. And those who are about to be. So if your ego gets in the way, you will get a humble experience you will get a nasty 360 degree feedback review. You might get demoted. You might have two people under your leadership quit. There will be some sort of feedback that the natural universe will give you through your obnoxious behavior of your ego if it swells too much. Some of it is normal uh, stuff, right? But some, some leaders take the ego and go too far with it. I, I remember working for one uh, person that said, watch out for so-and-so when they walk into the room their ego walks in 30 minutes before they do uh and sure (laughs) enough the person who walked in did have a big ego so it's it's You know, managing the temptation of thinking that you're special and that you deserve special treatment because you're a leader. All of this really gets to, Beth, the importance of humility. That's really what it gets Mm -hmm. to, is that we want leaders to be confident. We do, but we don't want them to be conceited. We want them to be confident, but we don't want them to be overconfident, which leads to hubris. And we, we want that confidence anchored to humility, to make sure that the leader hasn't lost sight of their roots and hasn't forgotten that they came from the non-leader ranks before they became a leader. Uh, so it's so management of ego, super important and not always the easiest thing to do.
1: Well, I will say that um, you know, as a Pirates fan, there's no room for egos with the Pittsburgh Pirates. You're you're not walking into any <laughs> any games as a winner, but. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think that the balance there between, you know, that that confidence, of course, and um, as well as the humility and keeping in touch with what everyone else needs, and and it's really well anchored. And and that leads me to one of the other concepts that's um, crucial around leading yourself in, in personal integrity, um, leading in accordance with our values and feeling like, you know, how do you connect what I'm doing at a leadership, in a way of leadership with what I believe should be done in personal values.
0: Yeah, personal values. I have a section in the book that is simply value values that recognize that values are an important part, not just of leadership, but being a good high integrity character, a person who's got good character and a good inner core. So values are important. And as you know, and you've seen it, and I've certainly seen it and probably have done it sometimes is when you see a person walk outside of the steps of the values that they're telling you. So they're saying that their their values are this, but their actions are doing something different. I, I coach a, a vice president at a company before he became a vice president, he was a division manager, and he would tell me that you know, family is a big value of his, that it's the reason he does what he does. But what he does at the time was spend all of his time at work and he would be there literally in constructions often it's night nights and weekends because sometimes you have to wait for access for the road that you're building so you're doing it on the weekends because you can't have it when it's a high you know volume of traffic coming through sometimes you're reviewing a bid late at night oftentimes before midnight you have to get the bid in and he, he loved the adventure of that and he would tell me that his family was his biggest value, the most important thing, the reason he worked so hard and such, and yet he, his own family was starting to complain that they felt you know, sort of robbed from the experience from him. So in our coaching sessions, I asked him, is there somebody that does a good job of this in your own world? And he said that, yeah, his executive vice president boss did a good job of it. And so where we got to in our coaching was that he would make the request because his own father, who also came from construction, never missed any one of his baseball and football practices when he was a kid. So the commitment that he decided to make with the help and support of his EVP was that he was going to coach his kid's uh, soccer game. He has a daughter in soccer and his boys' baseball games. And he has now done that for years. But I remember the starting point when it was his own incongruency with his value system saying it was all about fat family but really actually being all about work so it, you know you got to identify your values and then you have to say how does this value express itself when i'm truly living it
1: and i think that brings us to to the to the concept of you're leading yourself and, and your own um personal needs as well so i mean as you're as you're talking about leaders you know they're talking about my work, I put my work first and in, in my family. And um, right now there's a lot of talk out there about self care. Um, and I think for a lot of leaders, like it's almost like that's nice to have, but that's not me, you know? And the reason they're leaders is because they're, it might feel unnatural and selfish to put yourself first. They're they they're committed to their teams, they're committed to their families, they're committed to their communities. And those are really good things. Um, But you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation, the topic of personal fidelity. So you, where do you as the leader come into this equation of putting work and family and your team and others um, at the top of your priority list?
0: Yeah. So it's such a central and important concept. Uh, I had a client that I had been working with that we were doing a session on culture and leadership. And in the conversation, at least three people in the room, first of all, everybody uniformly loved working at this place because they were a high growth company and they were taking on competitors that were bigger companies and they were winning work. And they, but it it was causing, they were winning, they were getting overextended. They were winning more work than they had the ability to actually service and deliver the work. So they loved the revenue that they were drawing. Mm But each person was saying that they, you know, we love it here. I'm able to do stuff that I wouldn't be able to do until later in my career if I was in bigger companies. But I feel like I'm, and the term that they would use was redlining, which I never heard before, other than with getting ready to blow an engine by taking the RPMs so far out there. And so I started to explore this idea of redlining with this group. And it's the idea that I'm, overextended, under-resourced for unreasonable amounts of times, which many people in, in the workplace feel. Particularly if you layer on the COVID moment in the pandemic, when many of us, even if we worked from home, were out in the red line of working too uh, hard and too long. So this idea of personal fidelity is about making sure that you put uh, you, that you define appropriate boundaries and provide and practice self-care, not as a matter of selfishness, but as a matter of self-respect, that if you take care of yourself by you know, eating, sleeping, how do you start your day? Do you ease your way into your day with some moments of quiet reflection before listening to a shock jock or listening to some political radio and listening to angertainment? Are you easing your way into your day that's a form of self-care, because if you take care of yourself in that way, then you're gonna be way better for the people that you're leading that are under your leadership so that you're not freaking out all the time with you know sort of a low fuse that you get in the redlining. And Beth, it's important. I actually had a client that took three customers on a golf outing, and this guy worked obnoxious hours, and he actually had a heart attack that day and died. He passed away while he was entertaining clients and i had coached the guy and self care was something that that he really had a hard time practicing in a disciplined way
1: yeah and i the point of that you have so little reserves left over for others as leaders you know i think we all know um you know when when you're lacking sleep and you're burning the midnight oil doing extra work and all of those things um you often have, you're very short fused, you're you're ready to blow up at everybody. And like, what kind of leader does that make you when you have no emotional reserve left over? Because you're just too tired, you put everyone else first. Um, I, that's such a a powerful thing to think about that it's not, it's it's a way of caring for others in some ways of making sure that you have the reserves for them.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, right? I mean, the best way to be able to care for others is to make sure that you are taking good care of yourself. And again, for people who are not used to making themselves a priority, it's not selfishness, and it's not indulgent. In, in fact, it's a necessity, and it's like uh, it's self-respect is really what it comes down to.
1: So, another question I wanted to ask you um, is about how, as we evolve as leaders, and we um, start to Associate our success with the success of our teams, and a lot of us get into leadership roles because we love to be successful. We're really hard workers. We like to win, and people reward that with promotions, right? Um, and one of the toughest things, then, as you get into a leadership role, that um, is that failure can hit you really hard. Um, and most of us, you know, again, you you probably don't like failing in the first place because you like to you like to win. And then, secondly, as you become a leader, um, it's not just your failure, but the failure for your team, and it feels more public. And it's really hard um, in your image and perception of yourself when you when you have failure. So, how does coping with failure become an important part of leading yourself?
0: You know, failure. The it, what it takes me to is I've had the good fortune of on a number of occasions having to have worked with Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, uh, an international billion-dollar retail enterprise. She wrote the foreword to the first edition of my book, Courage Goes to Work, and Sarah tells a story that's pretty instructive, and it gets to the idea of failure. When she was a little kid, she was about 12 years old, she grew up in Tampa. Ultimately, she would end up and found the company in Atlanta, but she grew up in Tampa, and her dad was a lawyer, and at the end of every week, he would sit her and her brother down at the dinner table. Her brother is about a year and a half younger than she is. And he'd look at the two of them, and she knew the question was coming. She, by, It had been consistently asked. And he would just look at them and say, all right, kids, tell me what you have failed at this week. What an interesting question. And she learned at a young age that if you want to be successful, you have to extend yourself Often to the point of failure, so that you know what you're truly capable of, and that you have this, you know, discovery of what are you willing to do to become successful. She ran for class president when she was a kid and she failed. She did not win, and she suffered through the humiliation of that. But it taught her all sorts of lessons. So she carries that ethos now into Spanx. And she says, and she said it at Fortune Magazine's most powerful women's summit, she said. When somebody makes a mistake at Spanx, instead of getting upset, I often give them a high five, particularly when they have tried something that moves the company forward. So, imagine what it's like to work with a leader like Sarah. It's no—it's to me—it's not unusual that she would have a successful company, knowing her disposition and knowing her, and that she has has an appetite for some degree of mistake making, not habitual mistakes, not dunderheaded mistakes, but honestly made mistakes that are in the service of innovation, it's gonna come with the territory. But you're right, a lot of people feel a sense of perfectionism, there's a lot of perfectionists in the workplace. And when we fail, we feel so self-conscious that that's that failure and we really beat ourselves up often more so than the people around us. And we have to learn to, to give ourselves a second chance, right? Uh, and to recognize that oftentimes it's through failure that you learn some of the most important lessons of all, and it will absolutely help you lead on to innovation and improvement. So it's a, it's a, a necessary part of leadership and it's a necessary part of growth. And if you're a leader, you have to have sort of that tolerance mindset that Sarah has, recognizing that when somebody, as long as they're not breaking their necks, right? Like, but you want some degree of people scraping their knees because it's how they learn. And you want them extending yourself. So failure. Yeah, it's a, it's a good topic for leadership.
1: What really sticks out to me in um, the, star- the story you sh- shared from Sarah um, is that at an early age, she got that kind of validation from a parent, which is so unusual, right? Like, but those are, those are the first people in our lives that we try to please are our parents. And it sort of extends, um, you know, into the workplace of like, we want to always kind of hide our failure from these folks and, and um, make sure they're only seeing the very best, best of us, you know? And so that was such an opposite experience. And I think, the vast majority of people have, where a parent early on is saying, like, great job on on failing, what did you learn from it kind of thing. So it takes a little bit of rewiring, I think, for a lot of us, you know, as we step into these roles to um, learn to embrace failure. But what an example you can set for your team, though, when you do, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we're talking, you know, the, the very popular term right now. It's funny how we go through these popular terms, emotional intelligence, employee mm-hmm. engagement, yeah, empowerment, right? Well, the term now, and it's, and it's valid and it's important, is psychological safety, right? We need mm-hmm. to be able to create an environment where people can express themselves and be themselves, particularly if we want to have innovation in the company. And that means we have to have a higher tolerance for mistake making. But we as leaders have to create that environment. And one of the things is to make sure that how do you handle mistakes is a good question for any of your leaders to ask themselves. Are you a short fuse? Are you heavy handed? Are you f- focused on punishment? Do you lear- take it as a learning opportunity? Do you use it as a coaching opportunity? How is it that you handle mistakes? Because if you mishandle mistakes with explosive behavior that you're right, often comes the origin story of that is a puppet's. St- you know, from the past, often it is some heavy-handed parent being an echo in our own bodies. Um, so how you mishandle mistakes will create an unsafe environment for people. Yet, if you handle it in a coaching-like way, in a way that you'd want the mistake to be handled with you, then then you're going to create an environment that where people can feel safe to be themselves.
1: You know, and I, a lot of the discussion today, um, there's so much about when you become a leader things you have to shift and and kind of put on the back burner and and starting to manage your ego and starting to um, learn to embrace failure and learn to find um, success through others and not just yourself and so all of these really hard things about leadership and you know a lot of folks we have talked to over the years um, find that they think that the trappings of leadership the the higher salary, the the better office, the respect or things are gonna outweigh all that difficulty. And that's not always the case. They find themselves unhappy um, if they don't truly enjoy leading others. So when you talk to leaders, how do you help them find the joy in leadership and the personal satisfaction of take all the rest of that away? Would this be what I want to do?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a, a good question. It's funny you mentioned shifts because I, I oftentimes will say that that leaders, many leaders, in, newer in their career, that they you know feel weighed down by the burden of leadership, and a lot of times it's because they're not getting what they want as an individual, and until they make what I call the holy shift, and the holy, <laughs> <laughs> the holy shift is away from my self-focus and what i'm going to get and what i'm not getting and my own annoyances my own frustration until we shift that from selfishness my own self-focus on mine and me and i shift towards what do they need and how can i help them that holy shift from selfishness to selflessness uh, that's where you start to really start to enjoy leadership so i remember asking the owner of a six billion dollar Uh, company that I work with. And he was in front of a group of about 40 next generation leaders. And I asked him to comment on what's something that this room might not fully appreciate about leadership. And he thought for a second, itched his chin. And he said, leadership's a burden. It's a heavy burden that he He's got 2000 mouths to feed. That's how he looked at it. He says, I look at the parking lot and I see cars out there and I'm helping make those car payments. I'm helping put kids through college. I feel an obligation to make sure we always have a pipeline of business for this company so that people like that, that I'm helping to fund, uh, that I feel a great deal of responsibility and that can be a burden. And, And that's true, particularly in very, very senior positions or if you're the owner of a company. At the same time, in the same class, I asked the people in the room imagine it's the last day of your career. What will you want to have said about you and your leadership? What would make it truly fulfilling for you to be able to hear these things about you? And almost to a person, it was about how they had impacted others in a positive way and created a legacy, a lasting legacy of other leaders. To which they had contributed towards their development. So I think that the burden of leadership, which is true and real, the responsibilities that it comes with, gets lighter when you shift away from your focus on those heavy burdens and focused on how can I do right by these people that I am privileged to be able to have the opportunity to influence. You know, I know that there. I, I, I assume this has happened for you, Beth. It's definitely mm-hmm. happened for me. That someone at some point in your career took an interest in you where you felt a little bit invisible up until that point. They gave you a shot. They gave you an opportunity. They took you under their wing. They gave you development. And it made all the difference, not just in your career, but who you are as a person. They set you on a trajectory of improvement And you are forever grateful when you think about that person. When you're in a leadership role, you have that kind of potential impact on somebody. And that's a privilege to be able to positively impact a person, a human being for the duration of their life by your intercession of giving them opportunity, growth, development, mentoring. It's a great, so sure, does leadership come with responsibility and sometimes a burden? Yes. But think about the what a great joy it is to be able to contribute to the betterment of somebody's life.
1: I love that story of how, um, you know, kind of that zooming out of like, you know, when you get out of the everyday of like, I've got these million emails to answer and I've got these metrics we've got to hit. Um, what have I really accomplished here as a leader? And that impact on other people is um. That can be what makes it all worth it at the end of your career, because regardless of how much money you made or or all of the things um, along the way, such an that's one of the joys about taking that away um, from how you have spent your time at work. And it brings me to the last question I have that I ask all of our guests on this show. Um, can you share a moment with me about leadership that changed your life, whether it was for good? and you said, that's why I want to do this or, or it was a moment of poor leadership where you said, I'm gonna never do that and here's what I'm gonna do instead.
0: Well, Beth, I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, what comes to mind for me is that I went to graduate school. and I looked at a lot of theories about leadership, did a lot of reading about leadership. I was very interested in the topic. And I, I, I even had at one point in time, two different teachers, each one giving me a, a paper to do every week for 13 weeks. So I had 26 papers that I had to write. Uh, And I came out with really high expectations about what it means to be a leader. And nobody lived into those expectations. And so that made me disgruntled. It made me jaded. Uh, And then I started working for a gentleman named Heinz Brannan. Heinz liked the ketchup. And he was a managing partner at Accenture. And he plucked me from my middle management role, and now I got to work with him basically in a role that was very much like a chief of staff. So I got to interact with all people who had been more senior to me, and now I was at the table. Now, now honestly, I was at the table oftentimes as a scribe at first. And I got to hear what was on the executive mind, and I got to watch Hines in action with his senior executive team. Those, All those folks had high-stress positions, and he had a, a responsibility of being responsible for all of them and a 2,000-person organization that we had at the time with our large project. But the way he handled it with grace, with leadership, with dignity, at the feedback that he gave me, oftentimes, frankly, very... Transparent, very honest, sometimes hard for me to hear, but he cared about me and he gave me opportunity. He's the one who nudged me into the role of executive coach. I'm telling you 25 years later, Beth, that I wouldn't be on this podcast. I wouldn't have written six books. I wouldn't have the career that I'm blessed to have if it wasn't for Heinz Brannan seeing something in me, nurturing something in me, believing in me, encouraging me. And he remains a mentor to me today, 25 years later. One of the greatest joys in my career was last December when Heinz Brannan was honored by his alma mater of Mississippi State University, where he is the chairman of the Board Foundation. And the school honored him in front of all the other students who were graduating in the December class as an with an honorary doctorate degree and the the people who got to attend were his family and me i was the only non family member to attend and i couldn't have been more full of joy to watch my mentor a bit of a hero to me frankly a father figure to me to be on the stage to be honored that way and it uh, and it what it did is it gave me a model so that when I and I you know do my work on leadership I do have not just the book smarts that tell you how it's supposed to be but a person who actually embodied those things and uh, and I'm glad that I've gotten to work with somebody like Heinz it's made me a better person and it's given me a model to aspire to so thanks for asking the question
1: and I'm sure you know that story that he had an impact on on developing you, changing your career. Um, really, what this is all about, and, and and finding that joy in leadership, I'm and the place of learning to lead yourself and find this, um, you know, how you can create a life out of leadership that really matters for others and and build that beautiful career. Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You shared so much wisdom with our our listeners, and I think a lot of folks got a lot out of it. So thank you for joining us.
0: Oh, it's my tremendous experience, Beth. I had a terrific time chatting about an important topic like this, and thanks for inviting me to be part of it.
1: And thank you to our listeners who took part of their 480 minutes today to be with us, and remember to make every moment of leadership count.